Hey, everybody, and welcome back to Ghouls in the House. I am Arnold T. Blumberg. And I am Natalie Latofsky. And this episode was almost inevitable because we both love the general subject, and one of the movies we're talking about is another of my childhood favorites who we're going to investigate at some point. But I think it, it happened particularly because of a particular incident in the last episode where Jack the Ripper came up and your response was... Yes! <laughs> and I realized instantly I sounded pretty enthusiastic yeah, it was about even, a serial killer. It was even creepier than that, what you just did. And I'll put it here right now. He's sending notes to the cops. It's very Jack the Ripper. Yeah! So... Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I sounded a little too excited when you mentioned Jack the Ripper, but... You're very excited about that. I have a great interest in historical serial killers. So, yeah, it was like, oh, okay. Um, I guess we better get the Jack the Ripper stuff soon then. Hey, I mean, you married me. This is true. <laughs> so, it was an inevitable choice as a lead-off for this, because I also figure it's very likely we'll, we'll want to check out some other movies related to that, and there are a lot of great ones, including a lot that I haven't seen, too, but uh, we decided to pair up a couple, I guess, pretty obvious choices from our mutual interests in horror and sci-fi. And so, this episode, we're taking a look at two very different takes on the Jack the Ripper legend, uh, 1979's Time After Time. I think one of the most astute things you said about it, and we'll get into it in more detail, was after a certain point in the movie, you kind of said, there's not a lot of Jack the Ripper in this, really. <laughs> not really. And, and in a way, yeah, it's not really about him so much, but yeah. And then From Hell from 2001, which was an extremely loose adaptation of the Alan Moore, Eddie Campbell comic book that was eventually collected into a graphic novel in 99. Uh, but it had been serialized before that. One of Alan Moore's many massively footnoted comic book projects that won a lot of Eisner Awards and led to, I think that, I think it's safe to say, From Hell the Comic led to quite a revival and in interest and in some more exploration of like Ripperology and theories related to it, even though he himself was very clear that he didn't buy into the very theories he was presenting in the comic. <laughs> he was just using it as like a thought experiment to explore what did R the ripper mean to culture in the victorian era mm -hmm. and you know i mean ultimately we ended up with two procedurals sort yeah. of i mean in their yeah. own way so let's start off with time after time which as i already said is one of my childhood favorites it hits that period of time anything roughly 79 to 82 solid gold for me Written by and directed by Nicholas Meyer, and all of you Star Trek fans out there, roughly my age, maybe a little younger, know that we all are very firmly of the belief that when Nick Meyer is involved, it can't go wrong. And that's why his name pops up in all the even-numbered classic Star Trek movies. So 2, 4, and 6 are all Nick Meyer in one way or the other. And it's also notable that Time After Time is a time travel movie. 
Which in, is also your soft spot with yeah. childhood films. And I'll get to another point about that in a few minutes, because I really think now, the more I think about it, the more I think this is what primed me more than anything else for some of the appreciation I have for certain aspects of Doctor Who. Hmm. But... Um, but Nick Meyer working on this, he's also a massive Sherlock Holmes aficionado and a bit of a, a ripperologist himself and loved that era and those characters. And what's interesting about this, too, is anybody who is a Trek fan or remembers Star Trek IV being the time travel one that takes them to modern day San Francisco. There's a lot of crossover in the initial experience of arriving in modern day San Francisco for both H.G. Wells coming from the past and Kirk and crew coming from the future. And in fact... Some of the gags and bits in Star Trek Four, if I remember correctly, were bits that were originally written for time after time. So there's a bit of a back and forth with that. But this has Malcolm McDowell as H.G. Wells. And if your only real, you know, experience of Malcolm McDowell was like Alex in A Clockwork Orange or maybe later as Soren as the guy who shoots Kirk in the back in at least one version of Star Trek Generations, it's kind of cool to see him in a thoroughly endearing and likable role as like a very soft and and pleasant character who's like fish out of water and he's a very cuddly hg wells he is yeah and that's it's one of, it's one of my favorite parts of his but in many ways it's very atypical of, and we just watched him again last night because he's the principal in easy a and it's just it's weird to me to see it like i don't really equate the post-90s Malcolm McDowell with his stickery white hair that he stuck with from then on with the guy from this or even Alex. It's hard to see that same person, but there he is. And David Warner, one of the truly greatest character actors of all time, a man who I would gladly listen to read a phone book. I love his voice. And of course, many people remember him from countless things, whether it's Time Bandits or even bit parts, he turns up in Titanic. He's, he's in everything. He even is in Quest for the Delta Knights. Twice. Just because he wanted to. But he's brilliant. And he's our ripper in this. And Mary Steenburgen, one of her first big roles, the role that basically put her together with Malcolm McDowell for the next quite a few years. And they got married after that. And I remember growing up watching this a lot. And uh, my mother commenting pretty frequently, pretty much almost every time it was ever on, at what a weird performance Mary Steenburgen gives in this. I didn't say much when we were watching it, but she has such a weird delivery in this movie that's all her. She always sounds like she's a little bit high. Maybe she was. Mm. You think that's something you ought to see, the Golden Gate? Oh, what's that? Oh, you gotta be kidding me. Now, how'd you decide to visit this place? Stick a pin in a map or something? The Golden Gate. The Golden Gate. <laughs> Are you going to drive across it? Oh, is it for motor cars? I think um, she decided that since she was acting against two characters, that she had to be a character herself. Maybe that's true. Because yeah. it's like you've got Jack the Ripper, you've got H.G. Wells, and you've got the bank teller lady who does the money exchange. <laughs> like she's not, yeah. you know, but she's not a known figure in yeah, history. Of course not. And so I think she felt maybe a little bit like she needed to create a character and she holds her own. And it, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very endearing performance. It also fits, I think neatly in that time period of like 
women lead roles where she's very much in control and trying to take care of herself. I mean, she's there's an element of damsel in distress in some of this too, but she's smart. She's a professional on her own. She's also very driven. She knows what she wants. Yeah. And she will go for it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, she takes the lead in their relationship. She takes the world's longest lunch break. <laughs> I think it lasts two days. It never ends, the lunch break, I think. Well, technically, it never does, because then that's yeah. it. She's going to disappear. But basically, I guess, to sort of wind it back, if we're talking about like what this movie is, just sort of as a plot structure, it's sort of H.G. Wells cosplaying as Sherlock Holmes, traveling through time to chase Jack the Ripper, who he already knows who he is. He doesn't have to, like, discover it. He finds out pretty much right at the start and then realizes, like, well, crap, he used my time machine that I literally just showed him how to operate. And he was his best friend. Yeah, and, yeah. like, I guess I'm going to have to use it, too, and no time like the present, and, and that's... Basically, it it like becomes this procedural from there. Like, there's a a huge portion of the beginning of the film is basically just H.G. Wells in what was then modern day San Francisco, yep. trying to figure out where Jack the Ripper would have gone when he arrived because he's trying to find him, basically. And so it's him, I guess, piecing it together and. They have all the metaphorical elements of setting it up at the beginning that the two of them are always playing this perpetual game of chess that H.G. Wells always loses. Yeah. And uh, there's the great recurring bits of dialogue referring to the fact, you know, when he learns the way he thinks, which leads to one of my favorite lines in the movie. We know what's supposed to happen when and where he doesn't. This is one time I do know how he thinks. I even know before he thinks. And it's just wonderful back and forth of like these two cagey minds trying to, you know, in a way they're playing a game in an unfamiliar time. Mm -hmm. That, and that, by the way, to get back to the Doctor Who thing, this is why I now realize my favorite relationship in all of Doctor Who is, do is the Doctor and the Master. And I suddenly realize I saw this first. This predates that for me. It doesn't predate the existence of those characters, but it predates my experience of them. And here we, and of course, it's also Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty, because like you said, H.G. Yeah. Wells is being Sherlock. The Ripper is really stepping in for a Moriarty figure. And in fact, the way Warner plays him, I could easily just as easily see him being Moriarty. And so it's that relationship. And for some reason, that's the kind of relationship I love in these kind of stories. I love that they're friends, but they're not. I mean, basically, they have goals that are like contradictory to each other that each one of them has a goal that is foiled by the other one's goal but also neither really wants to kill the other because they do have i guess this historic friendship and this love and so both are trying to figure out how to get what they want without causing harm to the other person it actually occurs to me it's pretty clear throughout all of the movie he never really intends to kill hg wells mm -mm. he wants the key because like one of, the other thing too is this is a beautiful little appropriation of hg wells's own the time machine by suggesting that we're meeting him just before he's going to write all the books he's most famous for 
and therefore the time machine itself, and in fact that opening scene where he tells his friends, I have done this, is straight out of the time machine itself. And the design of it is great classic Victorian style, makes no sense kind of design. It's just like <laughs> overly designed, you know, brass and wooden cabinet that also has a nice nod in some respects to the Rod Taylor 1960 time machine and is just great stuff in it. I love the design. I love the weird ass key thing with the crystal on it that sends you through time without the machine, which of course is the crux of the whole resolution at the end. And there's also the little red key that prevents the thing from coming back to its origin point. And that's what the Ripper wants. He wants the key so that he, wherever he goes next, the machine won't come back and give Wells a chance to follow him. He doesn't want to hurt him permanently. <laughs> he beats him up. But he, he doesn't want to kill him. He just wants to evade him and go off. And He just wants to use his technology to find a time in which they both are not there. Yeah. So yeah. that he can just do his thing, which is murder. Very much his thing. I also love the fact that he feels painfully inadequate to the present then again that's to me one of my all-time favorite david warner scenes in anything he's ever done is the scene where he shows wells the stuff on the television of course it's convenient that everything he clicks through is a metaphor for violence of course but in a sense how difficult would that be really if we did that you know on a tv probably not that difficult honestly if you were just scrolling through channels and i think they whether it's an homage to that scene in particular or just sort of a variation on a theme they do something like that in the fifth element when lilu's trying to learn like everything that's happened since she's been asleep doesn't she start crying from all the yeah Yeah. and all the images are flashing before her and she's like going alphabetically through and as she gets to war it's just one of those moments where she sees everything and says like why should i save this world like this world maybe doesn't deserve to be saved if that's what you're going to do to each other also starring ian holm who we'll get to a little (laughs) later yeah and in her case it's like this like crushing realization of man's inhumanity to man and in this the ripper's like you know this is my world it's like i'm nothing compared to what they can do now and yet he's, I mean, he's still going to go off and do what he can, what he does. But the point is, he's just a drop in the bucket. There's just so much going on. We talked about her watching it. One of the things I love is how long it takes. There's so many great touches in, in this, I think. And in a way, this is another one of those cases where I feel like it's like I'm kind of overwhelmed by the things I've always wanted to say about it because I've watched it a million times. But it's like, I love how long it takes Herbert to adapt He stays in his outfit a long time. And then when he finally kind of softens up, they give him the tussled boyish look where his hair is finally tussled up and he's wearing the sweater. And it's like, okay, he's starting to look like he could, you could read him as being a 70s guy. But John, Leslie Stevenson, our ripper, he goes into 70s style very quickly. Like the second (laughs) time you see him, he is wearing an all denim ensemble. Yes. With like the jeans and a shirt and a vest and sunglasses. And he's just like the seventies man. He's got those little glasses and uh I think doesn't he have at one point the the standard like white and black disco outfit when he goes to the club, I think he's got I think so, yeah. Yeah, I mean he's and the thing is it makes sense. They're both brilliant, but Herbert is kind of I think 
handicapped by the fact that he spends more time intellectualizing everything and, and looking at it from afar. And John is more like, whatever it takes to hunt is what I'll do. And he's not put out by it in a way that Herbert is. Like, he's thrown by all the things he's discovering, but the Ripper's reaction is fine. This is the world. I, mean, I like, like, one of the few touches, one of the only times we get the same kind of fish-out-of-water touch that we get with Wells all throughout is the part where uh, the Ripper doesn't know what grass is, where she offers him grass, and he's like, grass. And it's like, But he doesn't react to it with the cutesy kind of way that Wells does not understanding anything. He just doesn't get it, and it's like, fine, whatever it is, it is. But otherwise, he's he adapts really fast. There's also a moment where he's walking through like a red light district, mm. um, which would have been his hunting ground yeah. back in ye olde London. The Whitechapel of 79. Except yeah. that not only is everything just bright and open and flashing lights, you've got like girls dancing on billboards, basically, like platforms trying yeah. to get you in the clubs. You've got a tour group, basically, that's coming <laughs> through where they've got a guide that's just like walking them down the street. And it's sort of like the sex equivalent of like maps to the stars homes. It's just telling them like, and this is where you can look for these particular fetishes for yourself. It's like that Mr. Show sketch where they turn San Francisco into an amusement park. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Hello, everyone. We're very excited about our plans for the new family-friendly San Francisco. We're relocating the citizens, and we're in the midst of a $2 billion makeover to turn this city into the world's largest family-friendly theme park city. When you see the new San Francisco, you'll say, San Fantastic. So he's walking around and thinking like, well, this has just become an accepted commodity now. Like that's not the shadows anymore. Like he can't yeah. hunt there because it's all brightly lit and flashing lights and everyone's there. You know, it's also kind of interesting. I never really thought much about it. But the fact that like much of the plot is driven by his desire to get the key means he certainly intends to travel again. Mm -hmm. The only question is, where is he going? In all, I almost start to think now, really thinking about it, he's not entirely happy here. He does it like there is that sense of it almost sounds like a, a feeling of emasculation when he talks about how he's an amateur mm -hmm. now. And you almost wonder, it's like, does he want to try to go back a little further? Like this isn't good enough because it's too overwhelming. Like, again, like you said, it's all open. It's like he needs the shadows. This isn't it. And I'm wondering where he thinks he's going. Is he going to try the past in between where they've been and where they are? Or is he going to try to go forward into the future more? I can tell you that if this movie were being made today, he probably would have done a whole monologue about it and told <laughs> you like where he's going and why right before he got like electrocuted into the void. Yeah. But I kind of like that they don't, tell you they don't give him any speech at the end because he's still playing chess yeah. with wells i mean they're still playing a game of chess yeah and so he's certainly not gonna do that like dumb super villain thing mm -hmm. where they just lay the whole plan out and show you where the emergency stop lever is and tell you you'll never reach it in time 
One of the things I also love the most about, I don't know how much of it, well, I mean, it's written there. It's obviously a, a moment that's staged and intended, so it's Nick Meyer's intention as well. But I think Warner's great at like adding emotional nuance to even the most basic kind of black hat villain character, which he's played a lot of villains over the years. Like he's the ultimate evil and time bandits and everything, but he's funny too. But I love the thing, just to jump briefly to the end, that very resigned sad nod that he gives at the end like he's he's pain he's in pain being the person he is he wants to die at that point and it's it seems very profound in that moment like it's like yeah let's just get this over with mm-hmm. which is a nice touch and then there's also of course as anybody's a fan of this knows there's his pocket watch Interestingly, by the way, Mick Garris, whose name will loom a little larger as we head further into the year for ATB Publishing, just did an episode of his own podcast with Nick Meyer, which I haven't listened to yet. And Meyer apparently talks about time after time a little bit, and I haven't listened to it. We kind of didn't want to get into it until we kind of put our thoughts down. Yeah, but I am curious if he says anything, because I've never heard him or anyone say anything about what the picture is in the pocket watch he's got the pocket watch which plays a little song i also looked it up now i don't have it in front of me but it's it's a tune that the composer for the film legendary towering composer who did everything from film noir to ben-hur miklos rosa did the music for this is one of the last films he ever did in fact he famously quoted a quote about him on this which i also didn't find any more about was that he said he thought this was the most difficult film he ever worked on, and I wonder exactly why. Maybe he was like felt like he couldn't quite get the tone, but I think his music in this is an amazing like throwback to the past, which mm. is perfect. But he wrote that little piece based on a, a classical piece that I think is from a, a collection of folklorish tunes. Then there's the picture in the in the lid of the pocket watch whenever he opens it, and it looks like a very uh, prim and proper woman in there. I think it's very obvious that that's supposed to be his mother because he has the one line of dialogue where he says something very like loaded about his mother being a horrible person. My mother was rather an atrocious woman in her way, but her many failings did not include raising mentally deficient sons. You throw me the key and I'll release the girl. And I just always felt like that's got to be his mother in the pocket watch. It's not a wife or a former lover and it's got to be his mother because he hates her so much and i wonder if that's what drives this version of the ripper but the fascinating thing is we never find out any of that i guess i just don't understand why you think his mother would be in the pocket watch if he hates her so much because it's the anger that drives him mm. and i feel like that tune is associated with her i almost wonder if like did she it's give like him a lullaby po- or did she give him the pocket watch? i mean what's interesting is what an incredible character touch that is that the movie then does nothing to explain mm-hmm. and i just feel like was there a reason for that because there's a lot of thought that seems to have gone on to that pocket watch and yet it doesn't tell you anything about it but that's what i think i think like this and again we should also point out this follows um, no real accuracy in terms of 
the truth of the Jack the Ripper murders. And in fact, the beginning of the film takes place years after the canonical murders took place in 1888. This starts in 1893 with the implication that apparently he's been dormant for a while and then has been awakened again because we see him kill right before going to dinner mm-hmm. with Wells and his friends. In fact, I also wonder, could it be that the friendship with Wells is what apparently calmed him down for a while? Could that be what did it? And then something started him up again. I mean, um, I think there's a lot of unanswered questions and sort of there's a what lot. the backstory is meant to be, which is always what's going to happen when you're pulling actual people from history and then trying to work them into a story that essentially doesn't create an alternate timeline. Like you're trying, he's trying to create this story that exists in the actual lives of HG Wells. Right. And of, um, is it John? John Leslie Stevenson, who is not uh, a person. Oh, like, and like not a real ripper suspect. Right. So, I mean, I guess there's sort of a bit of leeway you can take with him as a character, but not with the Ripper, because you know at a certain point the Ripper is neither caught nor attributed to any more murders, historically speaking. And so it's a character you know can and does disappear from that era. And so that allows you to basically tell a story in which, in the end... The only two options are he kills him or he gets away to a different era of time, either in the past or the future. Oh, and possibly he did, which we'll also talk about. So it's sort of like you can make him disappear from Victorian London because he did. Right. And the same thing with H.G. Wells. It's like if you have this little adventure right before he's about to write all of his great works you sort of know in the end he'll make it back to where he needs to be somehow like this movie really doesn't seem to ever feel like it's sending you in direction where it's like an alternate history film where hg wells is gonna have something horrible happen to him get injured he's never really trying to attack him like we said he doesn't want to hurt him and it's also like you said it wants to fit basically into the real world to the extent of making the romantic lead with him amy Catherine robbins who was in fact hg wells's second wife who is nothing like who has an actual documented family history and did not just pop into being suddenly one day although they they the movie ends with the caption that says she died in 1927 which is true but the Amy Catherine Robbins that goes back in time with him to become his wife is very different from the Amy Catherine Robbins who he met and apparently was having an affair with while still married to his first wife in the real world. But I love the idea that the movie wants it to be like there was an Amy Robbins and we're just going to pretend this was it, mm-hmm. you know. It pieces her into the story, which mm-hmm. you don't really you don't really get that until the end unless you already are well versed in the life of hg wells in which case you can put two and two together there you could pick up on her name maybe um but basically the movie really is about two different relationships between two people it's the relationship between john and herbert or wells and the ripper 
And then it's the relationship between Herbert and Amy. And there's uh, like a good chunk of the film where really it's basically just a rom-com. Yeah, Of it is. like him right. getting to know her, her feeling like the instant connection. It's that like mm-hmm. neat, cute, love at first sight. I don't really know how she had that love at first sight moment because the night before he slept on a park bench in the Victorian clothing he'd already been wearing for Lord knows how long in Victorian London before he time traveled, which was a very sweaty affair because he was pouring sweat when he got out of the time machine and then wandered around San Francisco all day, couldn't find a place to sleep, slept on a park bench. The next day in the same clothes, again, sweat, travel, park bench, sleeping, goes into the bank and he's like, uh, can I exchange some money? And she's like, I like you. <laughs> but he must have smelled terrible. They never address this in she movies. She likes a natural guy, apparently. Very natural. Yeah. Very, very natural. <laughs> um, and he likes to eat ice cream a lot. He does. I, he gets ice cream for lunch, I think. It's what it seems like. It seems like that's what he's eating. And she's totally not thrown by this. She's yeah. eating like regular lunch food. Over the course of a lunch break, they go to a rotating restaurant. They go for a hike in the woods. They go for a drive over the Golden Gate Bridge. They go see a movie. And then her workday is done. So it's time to go home and make dinner. <laughs> So I think lunch is a loose construct for Mm -hmm. her. And clearly her end goal is sweaty guy in the weird outfit who came into the bank today. I want to sleep with him. And so we're just going to work our way there over the course of the day. And I mean, she knows what she wants. Yeah. And not only that, but when it finally kind of gets to that point, in the evening and they're sort of sitting on the couch together. It's actually very, very sweet because she clearly is into him and clearly wants this to happen. And he, in what I think is just a wonderful display of how consent should be shown in films always makes it very clear that he is also interested, but doesn't want her to feel in any way like he is taking advantage of her or being in any way too forward and she's like nope not at all take those smelly sweaty clothes off your body and get into my bed (laughs) so i mean it's sweet it's a sweet romance between the two of them yeah but also jack the ripper's in town jack the ripper's in town not not (laughs) often just once in a while just enough to keep the franchise (laughs) yeah and then pops up to provide the third act crisis even though As you say, it's like one of the relationships that drives the movie. The movie is not really so much about Jack the Ripper. It's just the means by which it generates the engine to make the rom-com part work. And that's most of the movie is like what happens when a man from the past meets a woman from the future and the present. And, you know, they're perfect for each other. And that's pretty much most of it. And Jack the Ripper is just the the catalyst and then also the obstacle to the relationship. I also think Jack the Ripper kind of just serves as a vehicle for Wells to sort of get over his inertia. That it seems like he's got a lot of ideas, but he hasn't really done much writing other than newspaper columns. 
He went to all the work of inventing and building this time machine, but has been too afraid to actually use it. Yeah. And the moment that he realizes that Jack the Ripper was in his basement and took his time machine, he's got to get in it and he's got to go chase him. He feels personally, ethically responsible for Mm -hmm. that and doesn't think twice, takes all of his money and apparently his housekeeper's earrings. And it's just like, strip all your jewelry off, woman. I got to get in this time machine. But he thinks ahead and fills his pocket with jewelry, so, you oh, know. Oh, yeah, and he also has the neat little trick of, well, they get, they. it doesn't, I still, unless anybody listening to this can explain it to my satisfaction. It still doesn't quite work, but I've accepted it over the years. There's that little hook of, well, the time machine, the way this time machine works, can only land in the same place where it is. It doesn't travel in space like the time machine. The time machine travels in time. Except they want to get him over to the United States in San Francisco. So what instead they do is say that he arrives in an exhibit that apparently incorporates the time machine, which they found in his basement. But that doesn't quite work because that implies the time machine from the past basically materializes in the place where the present day older one is. uh, Anyway, so it's confusing, but it's like they tried to figure a workaround. But in doing that, they're suggesting that this is all actual furniture from his house, like no one touched anything in any of the drawers or curated it, cataloged everything and left it there, even mm-hmm. though no one's going to open it, which leads to the great little touch of when he arrives, his glasses, he needs his glasses. So he just goes and gets his spare glasses out of his drawer because they've been there all this time. It's, uh, again, a similar trick Meyer does in Star Trek Four with the glasses, where Kirk says they'll be the birthday present again because the glasses... So he likes these little time twisty gimmicks. It's, it's a cute it's, touch. It's Bill and Ted reminding themselves to go back and take his dad's keys and hide them in the spot. After the report, we'll time travel back to two days ago, steal your dad's keys and leave them here. Where? I don't know. How about behind that sign? That way, when we get here now, they'll be waiting for us. See? Whoa, yeah! Yeah, and it, and it it holds up about as well logically, yeah. <laughs> but it's like, but again, I don't mind it so much, and I like that. And really, there's not a lot to do, even in this, there's not a lot to do with time travel. It's just the means to get him to the place to tell the story. That's well, also, it. you could see it as your first little clue right at the start of this movie that he is going to make it back to where he needs to be, because there's no reason. Like, he probably didn't have a spare pair of glasses so much as he had a pair of glasses. You think maybe he goes back and puts the extra pair of glasses afterwards? Back where it was. It's not a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty good. So, I mean, the only way of knowing they're there is Mm -hmm. having done it before. I mean, also, he seems very sweet. Just all around. (laughs) I don't don't know as much about H.G. Wells as I know about some of the other authors of that era. So I just... I don't know how many liberties were taken with his actual personality and what kind of person he was. I haven't read a lot about him as a person except to say that having found out enough to know that the circumstances of his marriage to Amy, the real Amy Robbins, involved an affair, having married a cousin initially, I feel like Malcolm McDowell's H.G. Wells is probably a very, very 
pleasant take on a character on a person who's probably not that i mean clearly he was in many respects a visionary in terms of a lot of the stuff that he wrote in a way you can argue and this is an argument you can make about a lot of stories like this where you bring characters that are creators doctor who has done this plenty of times too where you bring people that are great creators in the past into the present where they sort of witness the things and then that in a way you can argue it kind of takes away from the beauty of the human creation when you say well yeah but now you're telling a story that basically takes that agency away from them because you're saying that they just saw it like he watched all the war on television so naturally he's going to write about stuff like war of the worlds and all these things because he saw it he mm. saw that violence and and instead in the real world of course he just had to conceive it he had to create it another thing one thing i do know comes up in the wikipedia stuff about it is mcdowell's one of those guys that likes to figure out what this person's going to be and evidently since it's a real person he wanted to like sort of steep himself in it so we do know another thing about this being uh, inaccurate in a way that we're probably all grateful for which is that he apparently got a 78 recording of wells actually speaking and he wanted to like teach himself a little bit to try to replicate a bit of that except mm -hmm. he found out and as it says here quote was absolutely horrified to discover that well spoke in a high-pitched squeaky voice with a pronounced southeast london accent which would basically have rendered him a cartoon character if he did it so he decided yeah. to avoid that completely and just do a dignified you know he's an englishman mm -hmm. and that's it so we do know that the real wells would not have sounded like that that's for sure but as for the rest i don't know i'm i'm certain that He's a far nicer version of a person than he probably was, but who knows how far that actually goes. I don't know. And John Leslie Stevenson is largely a complete construct. Right. So he, we have no one really. There, there are doctors and surgeons who are suspected of being the Ripper, but there is no John Leslie Stevenson. So they create, Meyer created that. Mm -hmm. Well, they had to create a character that you could then disappear in a way that some of those other doctors who were suspects at the time couldn't necessarily just be disappeared and let me now share with our listeners one of my all-time favorite things i have ever heard in the history of sci-fi fandom and i'm going to give him full credit for it because it's actually originally from i don't know where he got it from maybe he didn't create it himself but i know i learned this from a colleague back when i worked at gemstone publishing name of mark haynes who loved what he called the unified theory of science fiction fandom and storytelling in which you link everything together or find ways to link things together. And one of the most compelling and perfect examples of that is Time After Time, which he asserted was an unofficial Star Trek movie. Because any Star Trek fans out there who know the classic, the original series, knows there's a Jack the Ripper episode. Did we actually ever watch that whole episode? We did, yeah. yeah. Watch the, the Ripper episode, Wolf in the Fold, in which Scotty is accused of murder. We learn in that that Jack the Ripper is, in fact, an energy being that goes alternately by a variety of names like Red Jack and has been traveling from Earth, where it apparently originated, to different planets for generation after generation. It has basically become a distillation of anger and hatred and is driven by creating fear in its victims and then feeding on that and killing them. And it is, if it ever was human, or if it was never human, it has certainly gone beyond that now. <laughs> die, 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 everybody, die. 
Flash forward to Nick Meyer working on Time After Time, and as I mentioned before, Nick Meyer becoming one of the primary voices of truly quality Star Trek in the 80s through the films, even-numbered movies. And he makes Time After Time. And at the end of this movie, H.G. Wells defeats the Ripper by pulling out the thing on the side of the machine that protects you and enables you to be protected by the confines of the machine when traveling through the time vortex. So when you pull that out, you're sent through time without the machine. And for all intents and purposes, it's implied you're vaporized, you know, Your body breaks down. Breaks down. Although maybe, maybe what happens at the end of this movie is that the Ripper is sent into the time vortex, broken down into energy, but his hatred, his anger, the energy that drives him is so powerful, it keeps him intact. And he eventually becomes the entity known as Red Jack, who turns up in Star Trek. Time after time could be an origin story for the Red Jack and Wolf in the Fold. I love that. And there's nothing that dis- that discounts that as a possibility, except if you don't want to believe that, <laughs> which is fine. So I think I think in a sense, as a Star Trek fan, even back then, I think I'm I don't know if I picked up on that consciously, but I think it's another reason why I always loved this. And certainly when Mark finally told me that, I thought this is brilliant. I will also note one more thing before I throw it back to you, which is I just found out while doing this uh, that uh, its debut actually at a Toronto film festival was on my birthday. It actually came out on September 7th, 1979. So there we go. You're sort of left at the end with this idea that Amy loves Herbert so much that she just wants to be with him no matter what. It's this choice where she can go with him and be with him, but she's giving up everything that she knows. Medicine, her own like freedoms and rights as a woman, America. She's giving up all the technology that she has access to and you know the fact that she talks about how much she loves working and loves her job and she's definitely going into a time where being a working woman is not something that's an option in the same way and he is giving up nothing for that relationship he is going back to the place in time that he knows where all of his things are and his friends and his whole worldview And he gets the girl who's coming back with him. And to me, I just don't understand how that ultimately is something that works out for the two of them. I I never thought it was a happy ending for her. It's just so lopsided in terms of what she gives up versus what she gets and then vice versa. She makes the perfectly reasonable argument earlier that she can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the end, it's just like she's pounding on the thing. You got to wait for me. And and she's going to go. And it's a cute little joke at the end. She's going to change her name to Susan B. Anthony. But it's like, how does anybody... And, and we know, based on the history that this decides to incorporate, she's going to go back and die in another 30 plus years or so. And Amy Catherine Robbins was born in 1872, the real Amy Catherine Robbins. And like I was saying before, he was married to his cousin, and then having an affair with the real Amy Catherine Robbins, who was one of his students. And then they got together and married. And it was at that time that he started planning and writing War of the Worlds in the Time Machine. It works out fine as far as when he's supposed to be doing mm-hmm. his books. But like I said, those relationships sound odd. I to mean, say I guess the least. to their credit, they were together until 
the day that she died. Yeah. It also says, by the way, on his Wikipedia page, he had affairs with a significant number of women. Uh, he had a daughter with another writer. But who knows? Maybe that's also something that they were okay that was with. the way they did. Who they kind of I don't know much about his earlier writings, but they touch on it a little in the movie by saying he was he wrote a lot yeah. about free love. Yeah, right. So maybe that's part of the idea too. I don't know. And and uh, but like we were saying before, the the Malcolm McDowell H.G. Wells is an endearing character. The real H.G. Wells maybe not so much. It's just for me, I guess, from a woman's perspective. I can understand the temptation of that romantic notion of running off together, but I think that Mary Steenburgen gets a much better deal of it in Back to the Future Part 3. I'm glad you brought that up. (laughs) Because at least she's going forward in time instead of backward in time she's she's gone on the record as talking about the fact that she played the same role twice in her career and also had to play the same scene twice in her career where she deals with a guy who tells her that he's from another time and she gets mad at him <laughs> and uh she's and I, very good at it yeah she's great and, and and apparently she was cast prime like at least partly in back to the future three specifically because she had already been in time after time so i thought would this be cute She's always meeting people from other times. Although I like that they flip it in that one. Mm-hmm. But And yeah. like that works a little better for me because everybody's gaining something in yeah. that scenario. But in this one, I just I just don't fully buy it, especially as a woman who like thinks the way that she does. Well, this doesn't solve it because this means you have to believe something you're coming up with yourself as a solution. Mm-hmm. But based on Back to the Future Three Who's to say that the H.G. Wells and Amy Robbins of Time After Time don't have a lot of other adventures and don't stay in Victorian-era England all the time because he has a working time machine? Maybe they pop to different places all over the place while he's working on his books and they have a longer life than we think because they traveled all kind of different times together. I mean, that's just Doctor Who now. Now you're just doing Doctor Who. Yes. Yeah, sure, I guess, but I don't know that they really envisioned it. Unified theory of science fiction. <laughs> oh, the other thing that we learned too, as just a sort of a, an end cap on this experience, which neither of us knew before we were researching for this, is that Cindy Lauper's song "Time After Time" yeah was inspired by the movie. Yeah, apparently she named the song after the movie. I didn't know that. Not at all. Yeah, that's what I came across. So, I don't know. Maybe uh, that's... That's uh, your Cindy Lauper, Jack the Ripper connection. Yeah, exactly. So, everything Cindy Lauper has ever done is connected to <laughs> Jack the Ripper. It means we can connect vibes to time after time. Ooh, this is getting good. Oh, no. I've created <clears throat> a monster. You're kind of serious. Well, while time after time isn't exactly a comedy, and it has some pretty dark stuff in it, even with Jack the Ripper murdering people occasionally, there's a lightness to it and like a charm to it. I think mainly because it's sort of more a romantic adventure. Mm-hmm. 
we're definitely shifting now more into a film that feels more like it's an attempt to explore and depict the story of Jack the Ripper in a way that's far more of a horror kind of sensibility. For sure. And also be much more attuned to the time period in which it took place. No time traveling from hell. This is Whitechapel, 1888, and it's a dark, and to the movie's credit too, while it doesn't go far enough, because Heather Graham never looks bad in this movie when she should, um, <laughs> but they try to, I always felt they did a decent job for a big movie of trying to make people look a little less clean than they're supposed, you know, it, they should look like they're dirty or the things aren't great and they try yeah they even show you at one point when they want to clean up they go to like a public the trough like like water trough where people were collecting water to try to like scrub themselves a little so there's there's elements of that where they're, they're trying to capture the sense of what it was to be in the Whitechapel district in the 1880s and the only other the only thing about this though that i feel does make it a decent pairing with time after time besides the ripper part is there is however still a fanciful air to from hell not just that it's based on a graphic novel which doesn't really matter because it's really very dissimilar from it and both of them also took to heart as part of their storyline a very convoluted conspiracy theory for the Ripper murders that has largely been debunked by any sane and qualified researcher at this point. But it's a theory that took hold in pop culture, that the Ripper was actually working under the orders of the Queen to clean up evidence of an illegitimate birth that might have completely thrown the line of succession for a loop and involves the Masons and all that. But there's a weird touch in this movie that I like, and and I probably will say this a few times. I liked at the time. I find in revisiting this with you, I don't like this movie maybe quite as much as I used to. I used to really like it. This time, I think it suffers a little bit for me. But one of the things is they try to make the movie feel a little bit of a heightened reality, like it's not strictly real London. It's since it's from hell and based on that Ripper note, you feel like this is a London that really is almost existing in a kind of like hellish purgatory. And when the Ripper is revealed, they do a lot of stylistic stuff that I don't think is intended to actually be happening in the reality of the movie. It's just supposed to be something we're seeing, Mm -hmm. but his eyes go completely black. He's wearing like full black contact lenses. And it's just a weird touch to suddenly make it like, well, he's kind of a creature. He's like a force of nature almost. But I don't think the movie means that. I think it's just a style thing, like the weird green fire in in his carriage. The little touches make it feel like they were trying to make what was on screen look a little bit like a graphic novel, even though they weren't exactly adapting directly like from the page. Yeah, I mean, and the graphic novel was black and white, so... This is a lush, colorful piece of work in many respects. Mm-hmm. And it has a comic book kind of feel, but definitely not the comic it came from because that was a very... I'm not a big fan of Eddie Campbell's art, so I can't. But in particular, I really, really liked the... And we talked about relationships driving time after time. Mm-hmm. I liked one of the central relationships in this movie, the relationship between Inspector Aberline, who, again, was a real person but sure as hell wasn't the Aberline in this movie. No. Not least the fact that that Aberline in the real world lived into old age and this one doesn't, which is one of the changes I just don't understand. You do a history and then you 
kill off a person that is verifiably alive. I mean, they were um, trying to do like a Victorian era Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, but it's like, like two houses, both alike in non-dignity, I guess. Yeah, and it's like, well, why not make up a guy then? Because mm-hmm. you can look up Aberline and find out that didn't happen. Uh, and he wasn't an addict and well, whatever. But or a psychic. I, or a psychic. Yeah, it's the other thing about the fantasy. But I like the relationship between this Aberline and Sergeant uh Sergeant Coltrane, Sergeant Robbie Coltrane, um, <laughs> Hagrid. And I like their relationship. And they also have a very, Peter Godley is the character. They have a very typical police relationship of that you see in procedurals. But I think one of the main things that really suffers for me now is I don't find Johnny Depp nearly as entertaining or someone I can quite key into the way I used to. I liked him a lot at this point. And it's interesting is he basically is trying out the voice. He'll eventually push a little further for Jack Sparrow just two years after this. Mm-hmm. But now I kind of find him a little insufferable in this. And I just don't. I mean, there are some performances where it's just, it's difficult to separate like the acted performance on screen from the person that you've come to understand someone is off screen. And so he's portraying somebody who's supposed to be like troubled and broken, but driven and dedicated towards truth and ultimately caring and wanting to, you know, protect the, the woman of the very working class of Whitechapel and it's hard to see him as that sort of nuanced type of person anymore because you look at him and first of all you just sort of see Captain Jack Sparrow yeah um right but second of all you see Johnny Depp as Johnny Depp is now and it's kind of just hard to see him as somebody who would care this time around I really found it distracting to listen to him say things like, you know, he cut throat. <laughs> it's like, and I'm thinking, oh, please, we're really doing this cartoon. All right, you take this, buy some food, get a room, stay there. Don't tell anyone where you're going. I don't want to know. In three days, come to the Tim Bells. I'll leave a message with the barkeep. I, I, I don't know. It's it, I guess it's also time and distance. And like you said, you get to know somebody and it just doesn't work anymore. I also don't have any respect for Robbie Coltrane anymore either. So I used to like him quite a bit. But, you know, when you stand up for J.K. Rowling, you know, you lose something. So basically I have two leads in this that I have no respect for whatsoever. And yet I'll still say one of the things I think holds up. Well, dial back a little bit as opposed to time after time also this is a movie that is trying to actually tell a version of the story of the actual jack the ripper murders and what happened Mm -hmm. you do get dramatizations of the so-called canonical five that took place a lot of the stuff visually represented in the movie was done with a great deal of research to try to represent accurately they throw a lot of the things in that people in Ripperology know very well from the notes that was, were sent to the police, to the infamous message on the wall, to the way the bodies were discovered. And yet, of course, it's driven by that what's now considered a pretty insane conspiracy theory that probably wasn't true. 
but this is meant to be more of a representation of the Ripper story. It's not just the character, it's the actual events. And it's one of those cases where there's a very good reason that so many people are so fascinated with this case and with this story. It's really the very, very beginnings of what would become forensics, essentially. It's like that Victorian era is when the science was starting to really be consistently usable in other fields beyond like straight science, where there are certainly elements that were not perfected until much later, but there are things like he's piecing together the fact that there were grape stems, you know, under the body and using that as a means to understanding, you know, who essentially profiling the person who yeah. who is doing this and gripes <laughs> <laughs> yeah the accent leaves a little something to be desired he feeds him gripes um or like smelling um the remnants of what would have been laudanum yes. on their on their mouths you know understanding that somebody their clothes were not wet but it had rained that night and so the body must have been dumped there having been murdered somewhere else like these are all the elements that in more modern times are in every procedural because that's the way that forensic science works but it was very new conceptually and there weren't a lot of people who really understood it or used it it's also an era right before the sort of era of of scientists debunking mysticism where victorian england was just fascinated with the occult with the supernatural with this whole conspiracy theory really kind of feeds into them it really does um the although idea... not to say that the magic is real necessarily although they do those little touches with mm-hmm. the eyes I think the idea just that they are as wrapped up in it as you say they were. Yeah, yeah. and I think also the fact that they've given Detective Aberline like psychic powers yeah, that he didn't actually have in real life. <laughs> that's an awful part of this. But I do think what that's trying to do is sort of reflect a Victorian fascination with that, with mediums, with seances and things like that. It's also an interesting uh, dichotomy uh, that's set up here between the people in power who are part of that whole world of the occult and yet clearly not really invested in it. It's just a means to power, as so many things often are. But the Ripper believes it entirely. He is driven entirely by a passion for those beliefs to the point where you have like at least one scene where he basically pushes back on them and says, you can't judge me. And it's like they go through the motions, but I don't think any of them actually believe any of this crap that they're doing. But he believes it. Mm-hmm. He thinks it's real. I mean, some of the stuff about the Ripper himself and the performance of that, that's my favorite stuff in the movie. And again, it's fascinating to me, actually, now I think of it. For me, both these movies, it's the performances of the actors who are the Ripper in this. Oh, and we did, did we say full spoilers? Because we're doing full spoilers in every episode. <laughs> you should know this by now. Anyway, it's Ian Holm this time. Who, at the, like, at the time that this was happening, was having quite a surge in his career. I mean, everybody remembers him in a million things, whether it's Ash and Alien or a million other things he's in. But at this point, it was quite a 
quite a little surge in his career where he's Bilbo in the Lord of the Rings movies. He pops up in this. And it's also interesting, too, he wasn't even supposed to be in this. He came in late in the game. Nigel Hawthorne was supposed to be Sir William Gull. And Ian Holm came in to replace him. And it's an amazing performance. I love his whole speech about the heart and the anatomy. Mm-hmm. It's just, again, a voice I could listen to endlessly, whatever he's saying. But it's it's uh, it's quite a difference because he's really invested in that occult mysticism and they are not. And part of it, too, if you really want to like get deep into the nuance of how they're portraying the conspiracy of it all, is that there's also like a, a very popular running theory is that it was the prince himself who was the ripper and he was riddled with syphilis and it had driven him mad and they were basically like letting him loose and he was committing these crimes and they had to kind of rein him in because it was the madness of the syphilis and they have this whole thing where you've got the detective sitting down with the doctor and talking about it and them saying like you have to keep this in confidence but you know the prince has syphilis and he describes all the symptoms of it and ultimately in the end when dr gull like takes on that whole ripper persona he really is displaying that like syphilitic madness and it you think he of, has it too i don't know if that's what they were going for but it was sort of one of those he talks about how he, he teaches because he's got the shakes and he can't do surgery anymore and that the weakness of the hands and the shaking it's is the part one, of it it's the one part where i feel like the movie we've talked about this recently too it's the one part where i feel this movie doesn't necessarily play entirely fair because they really drum into us that he can't use his hands mm-hmm. he's even sitting there in a lot of cases where he's like got his hands yeah curled and yet eventually when it gets down to it you could see he he could do it so what does that mean? Does it just mean that he's overcoming it when he's actually doing the murders? or Maybe. I don't know. I feel like either they were trying to show the audience that like he was able to describe in such detail and like such a mournful way about what happens to the body with syphilis, which is now, by the way, treatable mm-hmm. with antibiotics, but we're, we're pre-antibiotics in terms mm-hmm. of discovery. And so it's an untreatable illness you just deteriorate away Mm. and so uh, he was describing it in a way that made it feel like maybe he knew what it was like because he was suffering from it and that coupled with his sort of indoctrination into the masons and that power structure and that mythology the madness sort of made it the perfect storm for him to be the one taking care of business here or you could just sort of see it as a nod to the, again, other conspiracy theories yeah. of it being the result of the syphilitic madness of the prince. It never really occurred to me until now, like many of these things we talk about and suddenly I think of something. There's that whole scene where he comes to him, the scene where he tells him Princess Syphilis. Yeah. And he's laying there and they say he's sick. Dr. Gull is sick. He can't see you. But he, he's sick because he's, he's so, he's such a good friend. He's like, I'll come in anyway. Yeah. Um. And again, talk about the relationships. I love the relationship between the two of them. Because again, it's this idea of like, you've again, the similar kind of thing. You've got the hero and villain 
almost sort of enjoying it makes me wonder just how soon Aberline really is starting to get it because it feels like they both are enjoying the time they're spending before they're going to have to actually deal with the truth mm-hmm. and I like the whole the, when he first gives him all the clues at the beginning where he says let me look at the case and I think you mean this and I think he's going to do this and he's laying everything out for him and once you know where it's going, it's like, this is amazing because he's giving him everything he needs to keep going. It's almost like he wants him to find him. But when he comes in and visits him that day and he's sick, we never really get anything more about that. What is he sick with? Why is he sick? And mm. and that is interesting. Like, is, is he suffering from something? And they don't really go into that. It certainly doesn't seem to affect him physically. In fact, another little touch I love is that weird moment where he goes into the room for the final murder and just sits there for a minute and it's like maybe that works because it kind of could be read as he's gathering up his strength and mm-hmm. then when he goes he lunges like he needs to do this now well he's still he can't got it. do it yeah maybe it's hard to say i think they're trying to represent a lot of different theories in one film by kind of bringing these little touches in Mm -hmm. and kind of giving you a feel for the era for early forensics for the occult for all of these things and kind of wrap it up in one fanciful tale a bit of a hammer movies kind of touch to some of it too a little bit a shout out to another person in this too jason fleming who's netley the one who um, is the coach driver takes the ripper around mm-hmm. and jason fleming's great in everything he's in and a lot of british tv and he's a great performance i mean his character is also sort of a renfield yeah right there's a that's another thing there's a very dracula kind of quality to this isn't there i mean i think that's the hammer element that you're feeling yeah because the ripper feels like a hammer dracula the ripper with the eyes and everything he's really kind of a vampiric kind of character at that point with a bloodlust yeah yeah that's right that does work pretty well. It's, yeah. it's kind of a Dracula story, too. It's interesting how Time After Time wants to be a Sherlock Holmes story. This one wants to be a Dracula movie. Mm-hmm. But they're both about Jack the Ripper. Which I think speaks to another thing, too, which is what an incredible construct the Ripper as a pop culture icon is. That it works in a lot of different contexts. I do think one of the places where the movie really falls short is in sort of... I guess how all of the women are portrayed because you sort of know going through it, you're meeting a group of women who are sex workers and you know, by the end of it, they're going to one by one be the Ripper's victims because it's all just pulled right from what they know anyway. And in history of who was murdered and when and, what their nicknames were and sort of general descriptions of the women involved. And I do think for the most part, every attempt that they make to make the multidimensional characters is just very flat. Hmm. It's like Heather Graham is playing basically, I don't know, like the equivalent of like the magic hooker like i was gonna say she's kind of like the 1800s version of the manic pixie dream girl yeah yeah that she's clearly smarter than the rest of her friends more put together she doesn't doesn't seem like the type that would be there at all no you never actually see her working as a working girl like the others you'll see pulling someone off to the side or trying to make a buck or this or that 
And they kind of make her the Madonna a little bit. Yeah. Where you never actually see her doing sex work. And that's why it makes it okay. I think one of my least favorite shots in the entire movie is the really over-the-top, like, painful, yeah, we get it moment where they just do that intense close-up of her face at the end of the movie where she's staring in such joy and love at the girl who could be the Queen of England, you know, in in their stunning like uh irish home where literally the shot begins with sheep jumping over a little (laughs) hill and the camera pulls back and it reminds me of like i've often done in classes about how the end of i am legend for example like pounds you with every piece of americana in five seconds at the end soldiers a flag a church a kid running by with a plane and this has the sheep and then she comes out and just like stares out at all of us with the whole screen just being like, hmm. and it's like, please, you know, we get it. She's totally pure. But yeah, that's that's obviously what they're going for with that. Yeah. So, I mean, I do think there's a bit of a failure in that sense, especially because the rest of the women involved are essentially portrayed as just complete morons. And granted, I mean, I don't really know how smart they would have been just in terms of like critical thinking. But you can't tell me that people who were working in the late 1800s in the slums of London as prostitutes would not have street sense. Like if nothing else, they wouldn't have some kind of sense of self-preservation. There's also the odd note, and I don't know how much of this comes from any kind of history, because I don't think there is, I think this is all created, because didn't we find out also, there is no actual historical evidence that these women were even friends. Mm-hmm. That's, so the, who these people are and the character dynamics is a construct of the film. I mean, there are, there are plenty of guesses considering they were sort of all working in the same district but there's the one i can't remember which one it is who's evidently a lesbian or bi or something in her in her regular life but like you said about the stupidity angle it does seem a little odd that someone like that needs to constantly be told by her friends stop being demonstrative in public because you're going to get in trouble and it's like, and she's not always so incapacitated that she couldn't realize that. She's also portrayed as an alcoholic who abandons her own safety because she just has to have a drink and she can't just have one drink. She's got to have a bazillion yeah. drinks. And then she's just drunkenly wandering through the streets until Renfield is like getting the yeah. carriage and she's like, grapes! One day, men will look back. And say I gave birth to the 20th century. You've got a serial killer who just roamed around the slums of London, not just murdering, but brutalizing prostitutes. And then just poof, disappears and just stops killing one day, whether because he died or was jailed or was taken away by the masons and lobotomized after fulfilling his duty to queen and country i too am someone who thinks that this whole conspiracy theory of the royal family is just like bananas crazy Mm -hmm. i mean most conspiracy theories are but ultimately really what it boils down to is that 
they were dealing with women who were not seen as of value to society. And one would argue are still not, you know, sex workers are still not treated as equal members of society. So you've got the royal family versus the sex workers of Victorian England. There is no need to create some kind of like legend of a brutalized serial killer. You literally just have to like get all of them together that you think are witnesses to something and either just disappear them, <laughs> just take them out of town and make them disappear. Oh, you mean like if that had really been real, they would if just that had really been real, yeah. like they could have just, I mean, they probably still would have murdered them, but they don't have to do it publicly. In fact, why would you want to do it publicly? Because you certainly don't want to draw attention to it yeah. or create unrest or something. And you could even do it very quietly where you're like, I don't know, hiring them for something and they go on a boat and the boat is lost at sea or some something That's like true. that. I mean, it's because we can't stand the thought that random horrible things can happen that conspiracy theories start. Yeah, I mean, and we're living through a horrific time where way too many people have decided conspiracy theories are where they want to live right now. It's something about the human brain and obviously many people who are more scientifically oriented than I am have done a lot of study on all of this. It basically boils down to the human brain wants to see patterns in things. It's something that the brain craves. <laughs> I love humans. All of us seeing patterns in things that aren't there. And so the idea of chaos without reason is something that the human brain does not like and it will bend over backwards to try to make the meaning happen. And I think that's where we are with a conspiracy conspiracy theory like this for Jack the Ripper is that ultimately still nobody knows the full story. Nobody knows why it happened. It's very clear that this was, if not a single killer, at least killers that were working together with the same M.O. Because there may have been torso murderers involved. Oh, don't even get me started on torso murders. <laughs> that, dear reader, is for another day, torso murders. I don't know if there's been a lot of torso murder films. Well, there is the giallo, torso. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, did I sound a little too excited about that? Way too much. I've been Ooh. really into torso murders lately. <laughs> I've got some books. Are you sure you want all this recorded for posterity? I guess that's what we're doing. I mean, okay. (laughs) Just on like a slight tangent before we end this. It's something that actually came out of looking up something, some things to do with Jack the Ripper before we decided to to watch time after time is that I found out that there was another likely serial killer operating around the same time as Jack the Ripper. Which they don't think is related, but they could do have been. Not. They don't think it's related and like they don't think it's the same person. Right. But they do think that there were similar hallmarks to the fact that it was likely somebody with medical training, likely right. somebody that knew how to cut a person apart. And that's the Thames torso murders. That is the Thames torso murders. Right. Look that up. Dear listeners. And then you bought a book about the Cleveland torso I did. The Mad Butcher of Kingsbury Run. Who is the one who uh, we now know, and I never knew this, is the is the 
the case that basically put an end to Elliot Ness's career. Mm -hmm. Also never solved and also possibly linked to the Black Dahlia murder in Los Angeles. At the risk of making this a little bit longer than, I mean, you know, (laughs) this is around the same length as we always have. But I guess I should say I have two questions, first of all, Mm because I figure we're probably going to revisit Jack the Ripper, Ripper-esque stuff again, because there's a lot out there. There's so much out there. And you're really interested in it. But apart from the jokes about it, what I would say, first of all, is did these two movies like scratch the itch particularly for your interest in Jack the Ripper? Like what what is your your take as someone that like you kind of drove the idea of like we're going to look at a couple of these? Mm. And second, what do you think it actually is that that so entices you about this? And obviously you're not alone because we're also in an era now with an extraordinary boom in true crime podcasts and documentaries on streaming in an era now where things like the Ripper, like a dime a dozen people do shows about all this stuff. So I think to answer the first part, I'm not sure. I mean, time after time is really not a Jack the Ripper story. Fair enough. Um, It's sort of a Sherlock Holmes story story uh, which i also love i love sherlock holmes Mm -hmm. and from hell is not exactly a ripper story either because it's sort of this fantastical romance between mary kelly and detective aberline in sort of the backdrop of the jack the ripper case but also the ripper sort of mythology that they're using or at least that the graphic novel used and then they pulled from because that is from just such a bonkers conspiracy (laughs) theory yeah it's hard to say that it really does anything other than tell a very fanciful story we need to find more grounded ripper movies and the thing is i'm not even sure that those exist because when you think about it not a lot jack the ripper is sort of the first real modern instance of an actual human boogeyman that jack the ripper was somebody who you didn't know what was going to happen or when he was going to strike or how brutal it was going to be and as a lot of people have pointed out the building of the legend was already happening contemporary with the actual events it was happening then yeah it wasn't something that waited they were already starting to build him up as a story Mm -hmm. this is not like something that came to light later and now we know about in history it's something that was recorded it's something where there are actual crime scene photos that exists many of which you can see in the movie you know so this is like right at that edge of being able to document the horrors being inflicted by a real boogeyman. They kind of do make that point in the movie several times where they make sure we see people taking photographs of the scenes. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a nice little touch. And, like, at the request of the police who are having them do this. Right. So I don't know how many, at least film adaptations, exist that are just, like, somebody actually trying to solve the crime which has never been solved and i think that gets into the second part of the question which really is that in the same vein that people are fascinated 
with true crime, it's this idea that there has to be a solution to unsolved problems. And in this case, it means there has to be an answer as to who did this because the fact that it happened is not in question. Right. And there's a lot of evidence that people have poured through. And this is one of those, because it was so long ago, the odds of anyone ever actually definitively solving this crime are pretty low. But it certainly doesn't mean that people don't want to keep trying. And ultimately, I think a lot of people love the whole genre of true crime because... It gives you this feeling like anybody could look at the materials provided and maybe give a different perspective on it and try mm. to come to the answer. It was only just recently, I think it was like a month or two ago, that somebody cracked one of the ciphers of the Zodiac Killer Yeah, that had yet been uncracked that. for a long time. And yeah. you were reading about it and you were like, huh, I didn't know about all this. And I'm like, let me tell you how many times I've tried to crack that cipher unsuccessfully. Yeah. But the point is, people are still actively trying to do it because, again, it's something where there is an answer somewhere to it. And there's an answer to who's responsible for crimes that you know happened. And I think that that's what makes it so fascinating for a lot of people. And especially because this is just really the dawn of really fully documenting crimes and collecting evidence and trying to analyze it the best way you know how. And so I think that that's one of the reasons that people are, are really drawn to this story and to the crime itself in trying to solve it. And the fact that the word ripperology even exists as people who study yeah. Jack the Ripper exclusively. Well, I think we're going to probably revisit this at some point because you're particularly interested i i happen to notice by the way while we were preparing to do this only recently christopher Plummer died and uh i happened to notice while we were getting stuff together for this one that there was another 1979 movie with a sherlock holmes figure against jack the ripper in fact sherlock holmes against jack the ripper there's a movie called murder by decree where christopher Plummer, sherlock holmes and james mason's in it as watson and it also uses the masonic theory that by the way just at the end of the episode here first came about as a result of uh, author stephen knight was the one apparently who first wrote about that and that's where it all comes from so i've never seen murder by decree but i'm kind of fascinated by that idea because it sounds like it was a building block toward from hell mm. everyone loves weaving a secret society into a conspiracy theory so and you know not Without merit, I'm sure. And of course, you now also know that there's a very compelling theory that the Loch Ness Monster might have been Jack the Ripper. Is this the way it happened? Was Jack the Ripper, in fact, a 60-foot sea serpent from Scotland? Did I take this job for a quick buck? We may never know the answer to these questions. <laughs> Are we done then? I think so. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie B. Latofsky and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on Twitter at nblitofsky, that's nblitofsky, and Arnold at Dr. the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Time After Time, 1979, and From Hell, 2001.
I am that meaning. Fools in the House is an ATV publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. A rock musical based on the life of Jack the Ripper. Yeah. Right. Saucy Jack. Saucy Jack. Saucy Now's Jack. the time to do You're that. You're a naughty one. Saucy, Saucy Jack. Jack. You're a haughty one. Saucy Jack. Right.